Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. My guest today is Stephen Davis, Portfolio Manager for Small Cap Value Strategy. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, for those who are, are consistent listeners to the podcast, um, Stephen, uh, this is his first time on the show. Uh, he is actually our, our newest named Portfolio Manager. Um, Stephen was, uh, was named Portfolio Manager with the Small Cap Strategy at the beginning of uh, 2019, uh, after about nine years at Von Nelson. Um, he's been a, an analyst historically focused on, uh, on the small cap value, and, and as he's done a wonderful job for us, uh, it, uh, it only made sense to, to finally slide him up. So uh, welcome, and uh, certainly welcome to the first podcast. All right, thanks. So let's uh, let's dive right into the small cap world in particular. Um, so small cap had a, had a uh, quite a downtrend in the fourth quarter of, of 2018, and you know we've seen a, a pretty sizable reversal year to date uh, in the Russell 2000s. Um, can you, at a high level way, identify any any catalysts that you that you've seen that have um, really spun this uh, spun this space right around? Yeah, sure. Um, from a very high level, the market was oversold on financial conditions that didn't that didn't quite yet match the price decline in the market. Uh, and I say yet. Um, in the last two and a half months, we've had an agreement on. China currency manipulation. We, we're nearing a trade deal with China. We've got decent U.S. jobs and pay data. We've got the Fed vice chair speaking to the fact that the Fed is, is obviously keeping an open mind regarding strategy and tools. Um, this all looks to us like the Fed is, is leaning back towards liquidity backstop mode. So, you know, the whole rate uh, liquidity fundamentals debate seems to be getting pushed towards more favorable financial conditions at the moment, but, but this can, can change daily. You know, and it's interesting that you say that, right? Um, and, and you talk about the Fed's uh, open-mindedness and, and potentially looking at, a, at another liquidity um, backstop. You know, I, I think one of the, the things that we've, we've talked about at length on this podcast is, is looking at the small cap index uh, as it's, uh, as it's in terms of its composition. And, you know, at any given time, um, we're, you know, we're talking, you know, plus or not minus a, a couple of percent off about 30 uh, of companies that are other loss or, uh, loss makers, right? There, there are these businesses that are not profitable. Um, you know, does, does the Fed's continued liquidity backstopping um, allow the you know a lot of these companies to continue to exist? And, and then is this a, a big part of why we've seen um, a real reduction or lack of quality in the Russell two thousand? Uh, it's a good question because there there's always been debate on why there are so many unprofitable companies in the small cap indices, and I would say it's. TBD on whether or not the impact from the Fed backstop keeps zombie companies public for longer. Um, I would say the small cap indices are, are a combination of marginal companies that have been around forever would have no earnings or no earnings power. Uh, you have fallen angels from larger indices. You have moonshots such as clinical stage pharma and biotechs. And then you have accounting treatments that show negative or no gap earnings such as REITs. Most of that is structural. Some of it's cyclical. Um, right now, contributing to, I think, the overall crappiness of uh, or, or lack of earnings for the, the small cap indices is um, near the end of a business cycle, you have bigger companies saying, or, or big or bigger companies saying, we have a lot of bad business units. Let's get these off our sheets and spin them and make them look attractive to smaller. So you have a lot of crappy spinoffs that have happened with bad earnings, bad bad outlook, et cetera. So I think that's contributing near the end of the cycle right now as well. Right. And so those companies get you know stuck. They're just mired there and, and, and they're not moving. Um, and then how much of this is also looking into the replenishment cycle? 
Um, and you know, the, really the lack thereof of, of new businesses that have come in or, or lack thereof of new businesses that are you know, desirable to own or have fundamentals that you'd be um, that are supportive of, of ownership in, in a small space. Yeah, the latter part of that question, which is having fundamentals that are actually ownable for, for, for what we do here, which is you know, obviously looking for good companies, looking to inflect higher in terms of returns, growth, um, intrinsic value. Very few of them, if they are, they have five to seven times debt loads and they've come from private equity and they're kind of stuck in public markets right now. Um, I think the interesting thing on the replenishment cycle, and we, we hear this a lot, um, you know, new companies looking to go public now, I mean, they're filing confidentially and they're only using banks for stabilization in, in trading, essentially. Um, they're going direct and there's, there's other factors that I see, other structural factors going forward. They're going to change how we replenished indices um, you know, versus the past. Um, we've also seen private equity-backed holdings, like, like we talked about, change hands amongst owners privately um, and then publicly. So those companies are not coming public. They're just changing hands. Um, private equity right now is also raising huge amounts of capital. So I'd expect kind of net public companies to be flattened down until the end of, end of this cycle. Yeah, and so, so do you think that the uh, continued development in, in the private space um, is that is just a, a function of the, the massive amount of capital and access and ease of access to capital that's sitting there um, that had, and historically, those businesses that would need to go to the public window um, to be able to, to, to function and grow and expand um, just, just do not need to. And with the you know, regulatory scrutiny around it, um, you know, it seems unnecessary at this point. And, and you, can, uh, you can grow and expand and, and do everything you'd, you'd like to do uh, without such a microscope on your business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Sarbanes-Oxley and a few other factors contributing to that and permanent capital of private equity. There, there's no reason to go public. There's no reason to put yourself out there, uh, open yourself up to scrutiny, et cetera. Um, it's, it's an interesting time right now, but yeah, there, there is no catalyst or no driver to say, well, gee, I need to be public because of, you know, X, Y, and Z other than clinical stage farm and bio companies that sure. just need capital. Right. Of course. Okay, good. So, um, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about at Von Nelson is the approach of, of trading time for value. Um, and, you know, I think we've got a pretty consistent measure of that across if you, if you have a you know, conversation with any, anyone or one of a number of folks. Uh, on the team here, but you know, I'd love to hear you know your take on it. You know, what, can you just expand upon that idea? What are we trying to accomplish at Von Nelson? Um, walk us through this this whole concept of, of trading time for value. Yeah, in, in thinking about you know trading time for value and, and what it really is, it's it's not knowing exactly where the share price is going to be in the next six to twelve months. Um, that's very different from knowing what the intrinsic value is going to be over time. And maybe you don't have a catalyst in that in that time frame, but you have a very strong understanding of what a company. Is worth what a company will be worth intrinsically, a company's business, um, the industry structure, and the path to to achieving growth um, in intrinsic value, kind of 12, 12 plus months out. Um, you know, I, I think you know the next question will kind of be, well, well, gee, why 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 do we get value, right? Why does the alpha opportunity kind of come to us? It's it is cliche, um, but it's it's there's so much short termism in the market right now. It's amazing. I mean, you have hedge funds, you have algorithmic trading. Et cetera, that want a one-month return. I mean, it's it's been shortened to one week and even one day in some instances. Um, we've seen some price swings that are just massively exaggerated. Um, in a lot of instances, you do the fundamental work, you understand the business and a path to to kind of higher growth and and returns during our three-year time horizon. And it creates a lot of opportunities for us. Yeah. So if if I'm going to loop together two of the ideas that you talked about today, um, you know, really thinking about the the overall depth of quality inside the small cap space, and then you know, the taking a look at the idea of trading time for value. 
um, and what separates you know those companies that uh, you have perceived with value. You know, how, how do you find quality businesses, right? That that allow, and it's particularly in small cap, that allows you to do to for that for that mechanism to exist to, to go ahead and uh, find those positive characteristics that are going to ultimately allow you to you know take out time and uh, and time for return. Yeah, and I'd say like most things in this market, from oh gosh, 20, 2016 to now. I can't give you kind of a blanket statement as to what the characteristics are b- broadly of those of those companies, but generally, it's putting in the time to understand the business, the context and and the history of that business. You know, management and the strategic direction today versus the past, uh, quality of business, et cetera, and then looking forward a year or so and being comfortable with with little or no return in the near term, um, but knowing behind you there, there's a hockey stick like return coming to you. Um, in the late stages of, of you know, any business cycle that, that we're in now, we're gravitating towards higher quality businesses and able to find these at, at little to no valuation premium to the market, but they're hard to find. You're not going to find them on a standard quantitative screen, et cetera. It's doing the work, having the companies in the database, having, again, contextual notes and understanding about where the business is in, in its own cycle. And so, you know, given what you're describing, you know, you're talking about three years ago, you know, or within the last three years, you, you, you mentioned, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to ID, you know, really specific characteristics on occasion. Um, but one that we do talk about a lot in-house is pricing power. And, and I think at this point in, of, of, uh, of the cycle, um, you know, I'll let you answer, but, you know, it's, it seems to be something that we've been um, really uh, narrowing in on as we identify businesses. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. Um, it's, pricing power is very important right now um, with margins at all-time highs. We're... We're always cognizant of mean aversion, always. We're cognizant of any type of uh, mean aversion, whether it be valuation, margins, uh, anything. You know, a few weeks ago, we kind of sat down and, and ran a broad, uh, a broad look from 2014 to now to kind of square ourselves with, with the potential f- for margin normalization. And, and guess what? Companies without pricing power, um, those margins are going to mean avert. And there's a lot of companies carrying elevated valuations with those elevated margins right now. And it's very easy to see. You know, over a cycle, you lose... 1,000, 2,000 basis points potentially of gross margin, well, guess what? You have no pricing power in your business. So it's it's not hard to see. We see the writing on the wall and we're staying away from, from those companies. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's perfect. So um, last one I have for you today. Uh, so, you know, as we, as we spun out of, uh, spun away from from the, the challenging 2018, we got off to a fast start in here in 19. Are you, are you encouraged by the market's resilience or do you think that this is more of a normalization of, of what to be expected? And, and really what I mean by that is, you know, we've seen vol increase, you know, we're seeing larger swings and those larger swings are coming with more and more frequency. So is this, uh, is this really what we're looking at here in the future or, um, you know, is this a, look, we've, we've, we've come back from a, from a difficult period and, and we should continue to, tr- to, to um, you know, positively st- uh, step forward? Um, I definitely expect some some normalization, but that doesn't mean we retrace all the way back to the lows. Um, you know, consider you have you have Powell, Williams, and others you know already stating they're going to be accommodative because they don't want another Q418 on their hands. I mean, they're, you know, they already talk about <laughs> potential negative interest rates. I mean, it's incredible. Um, even yesterday, uh, the ECB is intending to, to to favor and put in more stimulus. I, I'm sure the Fed is getting pressure from both political parties right now. And guess what? We have a 2020 election next year. So to see the market swing dramatically, and and I'm thinking more down than up, I'd be really surprised if you see a, um, 
uh, a swing of a large magnitude outside of a recession. And we just don't see it yet in the data. We see slowing, but, but no recession. Perfect. Good. All right, Stephen, this is great. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, really certainly appreciate it. We look forward to having you on future podcasts here and, and, and sticking into the rotation and uh, um, looking forward to that again uh, here in, North, in the near term. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks.